Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing in the backcountry. All right, welcome to episode number 34 of the Fish Untamed Podcast. Today I am talking to Darren Shank, and Darren reached out to me maybe a month ago now, and just sounded like he had some interesting stories to tell and thoughts to share, so had him on the podcast, and it was it was one of the most enjoyable conversations I've gotten to have about fishing. Uh, we were initially planning on talking mostly about his recent trip up to Idaho, but the fishing was a little less than expected, so we ended up branching out into different topics a little bit more. Um, and at times, it got a little bit sad and a little deep talking about family members who aren't always going to be around to fish with and how we're not guaranteed, you know, the next fishing trip or or the next day. So um, I really like those conversations that, that go beyond just the techniques to catch, you know, your next big fish or the latest gear that's in style. Um, so I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I'll go ahead and cut it off there. So please enjoy my chat with Darren Shank. I am sitting down today with Darren Shank. Did I, did I say that right? You did. Thank you. <laughs> I always have to put that um, part in the like the welcome packet to, to make sure I you know pronounce everyone's name right because I'm always like, what if I get to the part where I have to introduce them and I, I don't remember how <laughs> to say it. <laughs> um, how are you doing this evening? Uh, very well. Thank you. Have you been fishing much? Well, I just got back from a trip. Um, kind of a, I hate to say it, but it's possible a last hurrah kind of a trip with my dad. Um, we uh, took a two-week trip to Utah and Idaho. Um, he's getting getting older a, a little, you know, well, we all are for that matter, but uh, the mileage is starting to, to show on him, not just the years. And uh, the way things have worked out recently with working remotely, uh, everything just sort of fell into place for us to take an extended trip together. And so I'm, I'm literally fresh off of a trip from Utah and Idaho. Yeah, and I saw in your email that it didn't go quite as planned, <laughs> which I'm, I'm sure we can talk about, but um, well, brief overview. There's, there's levels to the game, right? Okay, we um, can hop in. Yeah, I, uh, I've been fly fishing all my life, but a large majority of what I've done has been small streams and smaller rivers as the largest water that I fish. I've been on a few guided trips um, on bigger water. I fished Lee's Ferry here in Arizona, which is the Colorado River where it runs out of Lake Powell. So that's big water. Um, and uh, the next biggest water would be the San Juan River in New Mexico which most of the time when we fish is about, I would say five to 800 cubic feet per second in flow. Okay. 
So going to the Green River in Utah and then the Snake River in Idaho was a big step up, right? Um, my dad certainly prefers to fish smaller water. And we were, we were doing a good job of fishing what we thought was the obvious water to fish. And, and we were catching literally, you know, four or five, six inch trout. All of the bigger fish are in the bigger, heavier water. But in those rivers, it's difficult to fish that while waiting. Mm -hmm. Everybody that was in a guide boat was catching fish. And the day that we had a guide boat on the Green River, we caught far more fish than we did any other day, uh, either there or Idaho. But as you know, that's not the cheapest version of fishing. So we were a, a little limited in how often we could do that. And of course, there's a little bit of a learning curve to fishing water that much bigger too. So we had sporadic at best results. Um, I caught my first whitefish, which the first time I was kind of excited about because it was new. Uh, it was 18 inches and big and fat. And I actually chased that fish probably 500 yards downriver because for the first 10 minutes of that battle, I thought it was a brown trout. <laughs> so, oh, that would have been an exciting thing too. Yes. If, if, it, if a brown trout fought as hard as a whitefish or an 18 inch whitefish does, that would be a big brown trout. <laughs> yeah. So we were in the Provo River in Utah and we're in some water that's a little more like we were accustomed to fishing. I caught it in some heavy, uh, some heavy current and it took off down river and I chased after it and it went down to the next hole and through the next riffle and to the next hole before I finally got him into some slower water where I could kind of control him a little better. And then when I finally got a look at it, I was like, oh, I thought it was a sucker at first. Um, and then, uh, then I realized that it was a whitefish and uh, that was difficult. I mean, I, I was winded and the next day, like I was sore from chasing after <laughs> that fish. Uh, Cause that was quite a long run over, you know, through some heavier water and over some slippery rocks and stuff like that. So, I earned that one for sure. Now I have to ask you, what, what's your opinion of the whitefish? Um, well, you know, it's not, it was not my intended target, right? Um, any fish that size is going to be a challenge to land in kind of faster water. Mm -hmm. um, they certainly, it certainly fought well. And uh, so it was, it was fun for sure. But my thought was that it was a brown trout. That, and so I was disappointed when it wasn't, but you know, it was still kind of a fun little adventure to, on that, you know, in, in the microcosm of that trip. Sure. Yeah, I, I um, have been vocal about the fact that whitefish are some of my favorite fish to, to catch because they fight so hard. But that is usually going in with the intention of like, I'm fishing in a place that has whitefish, I want to catch them. Um, if I thought I had a trout on that was fighting as hard as some of those whitefish do, I would probably be a little disappointed too when I got it in. I was like, oh man, this felt like a 20-something inch yep. trout. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I thought. I thought I had finally figured out things well enough to, to hit into that, you know, signature fish for this trip. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, was uh, a little disappointed at the at the end result. <laughs> but again, it was, it was fun. It was certainly a challenge because um, the only other time I've ever had that similar experience. Uh, I was fishing in Colorado with a, a very, very well-known guide named Landon Meyer, who you may be familiar with. Um, and it, I, that was an amazing experience because I thought I was good until I fished with a guy who was great. And then I realized, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I might be good, but there's, there's several levels up in this game for sure. He was walking up and down the bank of the dream stream 
on the uh, the South Platte River, finding fish for us to target. And he found, I told him I wanted to catch a really big brown trout if we could. So he found one and waved me in, told me to come in behind him in the river. I crossed over to where he was. He pointed to where the fish was and I couldn't see it. And I literally was within 15 feet of that fish and couldn't see it. And he said, there's a big brown trout laying there and behind him is a big rainbow. If the brown trout takes it, takes your fly, he's gonna run for that log right there. If the rainbow gets it, get ready to run. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm hoping for the brown trout. So I'm thinking, you know, thinking log jam, right? And we did a couple casts, didn't get a take, put on another fly. And I'm, I'm I, I, again, I cannot see the fish. I made him trade me sunglasses. That wasn't the problem. I just could not pick up the fish the way he did in that little bit of, of uh, riffle there. And so the rainbow grabs it and he yells, he's got it, run. And I'm like, what? And I turned to look at him and he's already running down river. <laughs> sure enough, the rainbow turns and starts ripping line off. So we go chasing after him and same thing. We went from hole to riffle to hole to riffle and finally into a deep slow pool where that fish just sat on the bottom. And I spent the next five minutes not reeling an inch of line in, but just leaning back and putting some pressure on it and then letting him settle down. And finally he got tired enough that he gave up and, and we were able to net him. But same thing that, you know, that's the only other time I've ever chased a fish that far before I felt like I'd, I could get it under control enough to get it to net. So that yes. was cool. Sometimes there's not much you can do except run <laughs> because especially if they're going downstream, I feel like if they're going upstream, you can usually kind of, I usually will like walk out into the river if I can and get, get below them and, and form a barrier. But if they go downstream, uh, it's often run or you're breaking off. Like there's not, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not much I do. don't, I, I'm, I've, I don't know if this costs me in some cases, but I have been a big proponent of fishing with four pound fluorocarbon as my entire leader and not using a tapered leader or anything super light that's like a you know six or seven x tippet I, I just don't see how you land fish that you know that are big in any kind of current with something that light maybe it's maybe it's me and my inability to do that but i have done very well with four pound fluorocarbon on my entire as my entire leader and then having four pound between a, a fly and the dropper and so if, if I get a fish that I think is bigger than that, obviously I have to be a little more careful, but I always have felt like if I got stuck or if I got into a bigger fish, I have, I'm, I'm not as at as much of a disadvantage as I am fishing with a six or seven X tippet. It just, it's so difficult. I mean, I, I'm sure you have the same appreciation for someone's ability to land a really, you know, tw a 20 plus inch fish that's in really kind of swift water and stuff. With that kind of setup, it is uh, a skill all of its own for sure. Yeah. Have you noticed a, a problem with like your flies turning over with just the like the not tapered leader, just a single level line from start to finish? I don't think so, but it's hard to say. I mean, I don't I don't have I don't get snagged. Uh, I don't end up with a lot of, of knots, you know, like from casting, you know, distance or anything like that. So I, I don't think there's any downside to it. Uh, and there's been days where I have caught as many or more fish than somebody who's fishing with a guide with, you know, small tippets and everything like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I do think that's a viable way to do it. 
The only only problem is I have to, I do have to change my rig when I if I'm switching over to a dry fly because the fluorocarbon just sits up on the film of the of the water and it, it won't sink and the fish shy away from it. But so that's a complete rig change um, or putting on a tippet that to you know between the the fluorocarbon and the fly uh, the dry fly. But other than that, I don't really see any downside to that. Okay. Yeah, I um, I feel like it also really depends on the situation. Like if, if it sounds like you fish a lot of rivers, um, in the summer here, I do a lot of lake fishing and that, I feel like okay. it's a lot easier to get away with some of those thinner tippets in lakes because you're not fighting the current too. You're just, uh, you know, you can yeah. hold the fish in place and if you need to just put pressure on for a while, you can do that. But those rivers, I've, I feel like you... You know, if that's what works for you, it, even if it's just the confidence of being like, I'm, I, I have faith in this rig, you know, you might fish <laughs> some it of better. It's that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Some of it's that for sure. Uh, if I was in a lake, which I do not do very much fishing that way at all, um, that would change that for sure. I'm almost always fishing in at least a stream or a river, you know, a, a larger river. Now, isn't it crazy when you said you went out with Landon and, and he was spotting those fish, isn't it crazy how much more knowledge you realize that you could have like when you feel like yeah I've, I've really got this fly fishing thing down and then you talk to somebody who's who's forgotten more in their life than you know yes. now and, and you're like I can't believe you know how tuned into this you are yeah well I I have some frame of reference for that kind of uh in my history I I was a, a competitive athlete for a long time I was a professional racquetball player and so as a coach of that sport now I get on the court with some of my kids on the ASU racquetball team. And, you know, I'm, if they've never seen me play before, they're new on the team, I'm dialing it down to their level, whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. And so every once in a while, when I shift gears, it's fun to watch the look on their face, like, oh my gosh, where did that come from? Well, with Landon, and I was the person in that role instead of the one with all the knowledge, right? right. So, <laughs> um, it was really cool to be on the other side of that for a change because I've played racquetball as, almost as long as I've been fishing. And so that just comes, you know, second nature to me. And it was clear that a guy who does that for a living is like you said, ha has forgotten things that I've never even learned yet. So that was, that was impressive to say the least. Yeah. And when you said that, uh, it, you traded, you traded glasses and everything and that didn't fix it. It made me think <laughs> of, uh, a couple months ago, I went out with my boyfriend and he, he is for the past year or two. Um, cause he got into fishing in in the past three years or so. Uh, and for the past year or two, he has constantly been looking at the water and he'll be like, I don't see, I don't see the fish you're pointing out. Like, and, and in my mind, I'm like, I, I don't know how you're not seeing these fish they're everywhere. <laughs> right. um, and then one day I switched glasses with him and it turns out that, uh, the, the quote unquote polarized sunglasses he had been sold were not actually polarized. Ah, um, interesting. and, and so it was the glasses and he was like, this is so amazing to, to see what you're seeing because I, yeah. for all this time, he thought his glasses were polarized and they turned out not to be. So that was an easy fix. Um, yeah. So he was pretty happy with it. was just the glasses, but that, that made me think of that when you, when you mentioned that you traded glasses, but that didn't help. That wasn't the problem. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I yeah. assume that he's not fishing with uh, unpolarized glasses either. No, he's <laughs> sponsored by Smith Optics, I believe. All right. So he's got and the good, the good stuff. He does. And I had on, don't remember if it was Maui gyms or if it was my Costas that I have now. Um, but they were good quality polarized glasses, right? Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the problem. It was, and he's telling me, look for the cheek, the the pink on that on that rainbow's cheek. And he's he's feeding, so he can see his mouth open, you can see the white of his lips and stuff. I'm like, okay, dude, I take your word for it. But I'll, show me where to cast, and I'll throw there. But I don't see either of those fish. Yeah, sometimes it was amazing. The, 
the bigger ones you'd expect to be easier because they're so large but sometimes i feel like if they're just sitting still on the bottom you know those ones can be hard to pick up it might just look like a rock or a, a log yeah. whereas the little ones are usually kind of darting around a little bit you can yeah. spot them a little easier yeah i do fish a fair amount of small water be, being here in arizona and uh, i'm a little spoiled in some of the places i fish because you can throw a dry fly out and fish will come from 10 feet away rushing to grab it versus going to somewhere like the San Juan or to Colorado where you're trying to hit a feeding lane of a fish that's parked in one spot and literally moving a couple inches left and right and up and down and that's it. And if you don't hit that feeding lane, they, they're not gonna take mm -hmm. your fly. So it's, it's quite a contrast with that. But I, I agree, sometimes the, the, it's easier to see the small ones. Now tell me about the fishing in Arizona because I've, I've never been to Arizona, but I, I also feel like it's probably not the place that comes to mind when people think about <laughs> fishing, um, but turns out you do have water there. <laughs> we do sometimes, yeah. You know, we, we've had an extremely hot summer, one of the hottest I can remember in the 30 some years I've lived here. Now how um, hot is that? Like what, what's a daily temperature? We had, uh, we had 50 days that were over 110 Ooh. degrees. No thanks. <laughs> yeah, and today is the end of September and it was 103 today. So it's, it got hot a little later in the year in the later in the summer than it has in the past, but it's been really, really hot. We've had almost no rain in the Valley in the mountains. We're getting some rain, which is critical because the, the Metro Phoenix area relies on water coming from Colorado and from our mountains to, you know, fund our lifestyle, so to speak. Um, so it's not the end of the world that the, the metro area didn't get rain, as long as we do get some in the mountains. But um, the, the premier place in Arizona to fish would be Lee's Ferry. Um, however, it's been well documented, unfortunately, that, that that has not been managed well as a fishery. It's been managed as a power source for California. So regardless of what happens with the fish spawning or anything like that, if California needs a more like needs more electricity, then they open up the dams, the floodgates, and produce more hydroelectricity for to send to California. And whatever happens in the river happens, and that has been very detrimental to the fish population. Uh, there's it used to be that if you did not catch a five pound fish or better in a weekend, you have a you had a terrible weekend. The last time I went on a guided trip up there, which has been probably five years now. Uh, I caught one fish that the guide swore up and down was 18 inches, uh, turned out to be 16 and a half. And uh, he was excited that I got a nice fish. Now we caught 40 or 50, I caught 40 or 50 fish that day. And so did my friend that was with me, but nothing of size, nothing of, you know, that legendary Lee's Ferry status. So it's really unfortunate that that's how that fishery is managed because the, the, scenery is unparalleled. I mean, you're on a boat in a river going through, in some places, 200 foot red rock canyon walls. And it's just, it's amazing. And the water looks pristine. I mean, it looks like ideal habitat, but because of the way it's managed, the, the fish population has really reduced in size over the years. So that's the place that most people think of right away. Um, the that one picture that i sent you of the big brown trout i'm holding I, I don't disclose where that is but it's not that far outside of phoenix um it's about two hours north of, of the metro phoenix area and it was a very small creek it's not something that you would look at that water and assume there'd be a brown trout that big there um i think 
every hole on that rip on that stream has a brown trout roughly that size. I've seen them, I've caught some, I've missed some. It's just amazing habitat and you have to hike into a rugged canyon so that weeds out a lot of people right there. And up above where that canyon is, there's a campground where the fish and game department stocks a bunch of 10 to 12 inch rainbows for the campers to catch. And those rainbows move down through into the canyon. And in some cases, I'm sure they become food for the big brown trout. Um, or if they manage to get to a certain size, then, you know, then they aren't, they're in less danger of getting eaten, but now they're more fun for me to catch yeah. to fill in the gaps between the brown trout that I catch. <laughs> yeah. I do want to, I do want to uh, talk to you about that picture. Cause um, I was going back to your <laughs> email and I saw that you had said that that was your best fish, but not necessarily the largest. Um, I did right. have a question about Lee's Ferry first, though, because sure. I've heard I've heard about Lee's Ferry um, from some friends who have fished there and just kind of being like the, the, the place to go in Arizona. How big is Lee's Ferry? Because when I'm thinking of the fact that that's, that's the one place I always hear about in Arizona, I'm like, you know, if it's not that big a place, that's got to be, you know, shoulder to shoulder fishing with everybody who's got to go there. But maybe it's bigger than I think it is as a, uh, a single from the sounds location. of it. Yeah, from the sounds of that, it, it definitely would be. Um, the flows will vary quite a bit, um, again, depending on how much hydroelectricity California needs. Um, but you can only access by, uh, by foot. You can't really even wade. Uh, there is a walk-in area, but it's, it's very limited. If you, at the boat ramp where everybody launches to, to go up, up river on their boats, you can go maybe a half mile up river and by walking and that's it. Everything has okay. to be accessed access by boat. So as with anything outdoors, the farther you travel, the less people you see. It's 14 miles from the boat launch to the roughly the base of the dam. So if you're willing to do that legwork of getting up there, and if the river's flowing high, that's easy. If the river's low, one of you has to stand on the front of the boat and navigate around the rocks to the, you know, and, and you know, point fingers left and right to the person steering the boat because you literally are in danger of scraping bottom in, in a lot of places. So if you go anywhere above eight miles in, it's highly likely you'll be at least in a section of river by yourself. And if you go all the way to the top, you may see one or two other boats that come to the top, but then they're drifting quickly down through and you can pull over and fish a stretch and then get in a boat and then drift a little bit and then pull over and fish another stretch, things like that. Okay. So it's, it's less so that there's not a ton of anglers or that it's um, like a really small spot. It's just that people are kind of passing through because they're in boats. So it's not a bunch of guys standing shoulder to shoulder casting no, the same runs all. over and over. Okay. That makes no more sense. There's a place where, where the person I used to fish with and I would camp and there was almost a mile stretch of shoreline. And I, we, on a really windy day, um, we discovered that we were able to walk to the top of that, of that run, throw in about 10, 15 feet off of, off of the shore and literally walk as far as you wanted on a drift. If you could walk the same pace that you were drifting mm -hmm. and do uh, a quarter of a mile drift before you had to recast. And so in, in windy conditions, that was critical to catching fish that day because you weren't able to cast very well. You certainly there was no no topwater action, so I I probably walked 20 miles that day, walking <laughs> down river and then walking all the way back up and throwing in and walking down river again. So 
uh, but it was very effective. I caught 50 fish in that were all pretty good size in, you know, fairly heavy water and between sunup and sundown. I, I mean, I fished every minute of that day that I could because I clicked into something that was working and I, I wanted to get as much out of it as I could. So I was, I did it from dawn till dusk. Mm -hmm. So is that, is that a fairly large river there? Like compared to, I know we were talking about large versus small streams. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like you grew up fishing kind of smaller stuff and mm -hmm. um, the larger rivers are, are a bit newer to you. Would you, would you classify this in the larger river category? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I, I don't know if, um, CFS off the top of my head, but I would say it's similar to the Snake River, which I believe when we were there was about 2,400 cubic feet. Um, so it's similar in size to that for sure. Okay. It's, it's big water. What have you found are the, like, cause I, I feel a little bit overwhelmed sometimes by larger rivers too, especially ones that I haven't fished before. It's one thing if you know the river and you know where to go, but right. um, it's not, I feel like it's pretty easy to walk up to a small Creek that you've never seen before and catch, you know, two dozen fish out of it sure. pretty easily, but larger rivers, like what are, what are the challenges that you found? I know you said that this trip didn't go super as planned <laughs> being on foot and everything, but like what, what yeah. struggles do you find with the larger rivers? Well, what did work was a bounce rig. If you're familiar with what that is, um, the, the boat guide or the, excuse me, the guide that was, that had us in the boat tied a balloon as our indicator and had a bounce rig with 18 split shot on it. And you know, the BB size split shot and the, the, the bounce rig has the weight at the bottom and then the flies are suspended above it. So that makes sense to me in the boat where you're fishing almost straight down because you're not casting very far away from the boat, right? Now, the how deep is with, that? Uh, that river is pretty deep in some spots. So uh, he was very, very particular about how he tied that rig up. He was literally measuring the length of the of the overall rig and then the distance between the flies and stuff. There clearly seemed to be a, a science to having everything exactly right. Okay, yeah, that's what um, I was wondering, because I was like, if you yeah. got 18 split shot on one end and a balloon on the other, you can't have it dragging like an extra two feet right. on the bottom where it's gonna get hung up, but you also don't right. want an 18 split shot just dangling in the middle of the water column. <laughs> right, and the balloon was about three inches in diameter. If you would have used anything smaller than that, I'm sure all that weight would have pulled it under, Sucked no it under. question. Okay. Um, but it was very effective. It would dra It would bounce along the bottom, but not get stuck hence the name, I guess. But um, so to back to your question, the problem with that rig to fish from, you know, being able to wade in 10, maybe 15 feet off of the bank, and then throwing that rig a decent distance away, trying to get to the main channel of the river, herein lies the problem with, with fishing bigger water like that. If, if I could have used a dry fly and just thrown that as far as I could cast it, I probably would have been okay but it was a little bit windy. There had been a cold snap that happened about a week and a half or two weeks before we got there. So a lot of the terrestrial and topwater activity just went away. And so nymphing would have been better, but getting out to the water where the bigger fish were proved to be very difficult for us. I don't know if other people who were waiting had a lot more success than we did. Everybody who went by us in a boat was catching fish. So when they were in the main channel of the river, what they were doing was working, but what we were trying to replicate from a distance away from that main channel was mm -hmm. not working. Now, were they all using, like the people in the boats, were they using that balloon bounce bounce rig? 
I believe that's kind of standard issue for the, the guides up there. Okay. Um, I, I, most people that were close enough, I could see their, the balloon as the indicator when they passed by. Um, and, or when they were fighting a fish, you could see that, you know, the balloon getting pulled into the, towards the top of the rod. Um, so I think that's pretty kind of standard operating procedure for that particular river. Yeah. Were you, were you into that rig or was there a party that was like, this doesn't feel right? <laughs> well, I hate to say it, but I, ad I adapted to that a little easier than my dad did. Okay. Um, they wanted you to water load it to cast. So I don't know I if there's was, anything else you could do with something that uh, right. heavy. <laughs> I was holding the rig in my hand, the, the split shot in my hand, and tossing it out the right side of the boat. And then when when enough of the rig went in that the, the balloon hit the water, then I would throw it to the left side and drift it. Okay. And so my dad was struggling with that a little, little bit. He, I mean, neither one of us had, had ever done that. And for whatever reason, the rhythm of that was just kind of, you know, he was struggling to get, get a handle on it. Um, we had gone, my dad had gone a day and a half of fishing, wade fishing without catching a fish. I had caught nothing larger than seven inches in, in a day and a half. So whatever the guide suggested, I was all for it because I was tired of not catching anything sizable whatsoever. So once I got the hang of it, it, it again, we were doing long drifts before we'd have to, to pull the rig in. Most of the time, I we were at the end of a run run where we would pull the rigs in versus one of us getting stuck or having a hit and missing it. So it seemed like a very effective way to do it. Um, and it, and it certainly worked. We caught some fish, but again, that I don't think that would have transferred very well into the wade fishing that we were also there trying to do. Sure. So it's kind of like, you know, the technique itself wouldn't be your first choice, but if it's between that and catching uh, tiny fish or no fish on a, on an out of state trip that you've, you know, obviously put a, like, you know, a lot of looking forward to and probably time and money into then yep. you're going to listen to what the, whatever the guide says to do. You betcha. I'm not <laughs> that stubborn. <laughs> I've, I've fished a similar technique, not, never with the balloon, but, um, there's a, a tailwater, you know, right below the dam area here that that's, that's the way to do it is to put on a, a ton of weight and then, um, put the the flies on the tag ends above that and just like mm -hmm. dredge it through but we always did it without without any sort of indicator it was just feeling it oh okay um but it was, everyone had to cast in unison because you're all standing you know maybe there's you know it's such a short area that everyone's standing within 20 feet of each other uh, so because you have to kind of like load the rod and then sling mm -hmm. it over your shoulder um you have to wait for everyone to do it in unison so all the lines go upstream at the same time <laughs> and they all come down at the same time and you're kind of in this like synchronized swimming sort of uh, casting yeah. motion. <laughs> well, as long as everybody's playing nice, that works, but I'm sure yeah. there's, there's always somebody in the group that messes <laughs> yeah. it up, right? <laughs> One bad apple who gets all tangled with everybody right. else. So tell me about that, that picture that you sent, that you said that that was your best fish, but not yeah. necessarily your largest. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's close to the largest. Um, I caught that rainbow that I caught when I was with Landon, um, was, uh, a shade under 25 inches. Um, and, and we estimated it was probably about seven and a half pounds. Um, I caught another rainbow, which we'll, we can talk about this in a second, um, in a, in a place that is managed for catch and release and large fish by the fishing game department here in Arizona. Uh, I caught a seven, seven pound, nine ounce rainbow that was 25 inches. So those are my two biggest fish. The reason I like that brown trout the best is several reasons. One, 
I'm, this is going to sound crazy, but I stand by my story. Um, 10 years before I caught that fish, I saw it in that same hole. It was, I don't know if it had just gotten caught or if it had like eaten a crayfish in shallow water and was like feeling heavy and sitting there, but he was sitting in really shallow water. Like his dorsal fin was out of the water and he has such distinct coloration of that dark green back and then such a honey golden color to him um, that I, and it was in the same hole. So I contend that that was that same fish that I saw 10 years prior to actually catching it. When I saw it, it was about 18 inches, I'm guessing. And when I was walking upstream, I, he was not in a place where I expected to see him. So we kind of, you know, I was surprised to see him there. And my first thought was, oh, I, I want to cast to him. But then I was, as I was looking at it, I'm like, well, he's clearly not feeding. And I'm not even sure he's okay. So I like stepped in the water and poked him with my rod and then he took off, right? So he was okay. Um, and then when I actually was, when I, the day I caught him, my dad and I had hiked into that rugged canyon and we're having a great day. It was actually Father's Day. Uh, we were having a great day of fishing and I was in this, we were in this long stretched out hole that doesn't have a ton of cover to it. And oddly enough, there is an, a huge osprey that lives in a really big tree that's right there in the middle of that hole. And yet this huge brown trout has managed to elude this osprey all of his life. So I'm fishing in the middle of the hole and I hear a fish, a big fish suck a bug off of the surface. And as you I'm sure know, it makes a very different noise than when a small fish does it, right? A small fish is banging into that fly or that mm. bug trying to kill it. And a big fish is just, you know, coming up and closing its mouth over it. And it sort of makes that popping noise. And then when you look, you can tell by the rings that that was a big fish, right? So that's exactly what happened. I heard the noise. I reeled my line in real quick. I went up to where it, where it was. I'm under some trees. So I'm literally like casting sideways and I do a good roll cast right to in front of the rock where I think he's laying behind. And it, the fly starts drifting down through. I had a black ant on, um, no weight, but it, it was subsurface. And all of a sudden my line stopped and I thought, ah, I, I'm hung up on the rock. And I lifted it. And I actually kind of tugged on it a little bit because I thought I was stuck and then it started to move. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh. And so now I'm, now I realize that I'm fighting a fish, not stuck. And so I whistled for my dad because I knew it was a big fish and I'm, I'm, I'm under a tree. So I'm you know, like literally keeping my rod at a very steep angle, not up like I want it, but very, very steep angle to the side. And I figured I was going to need some help. So my dad comes, comes hustling up through and um, he grabbed his net and I had not seen the fish before my dad arrived, but I could tell that it was a big fish. And when I finally got it to roll up on the surface, both of us were like, oh my God, right? We <laughs> knew it was a, just a special fish for sure. And so my dad netted it and, our, uh, and then he handed the net to me and I handed him my camera and, and my phone. And so he's filming me unhooking this fish and then lifting it up and holding it and posing for some pictures. And then I put it back in the net and then I lift it up one more time and the fish, the fish flips out of my hands and disappears. Right? So the video I have of that is kind of funny. I was going to release him anyway, of course, but it just, you know, it was sort of like, well, he won, he got away. Um, but uh, you know, I was able to measure him on my net and stuff. And 
just the fact that my dad was there and it's, it's such a small stream to house such a large fish like that was a really special moment. And then on that same day, my dad caught not quite as big, but a really nice female brown trout, a couple of holes upstream of where that was. So I have that picture of me and then a picture of him from that same day. And then last summer I caught that fish again. Unfortunately, my dad hit him with the net while he was trying to net him and, and broke him off. Oh, no. <laughs> we, he, again, he has such distinct coloration. It was in exactly the same hole. We both got a very, very good look at it. So I'm sure it was that same fish, no doubt. So as far as I know, he's still in there. And I'm, I've tried visiting him a couple of times this year so far. We, you know, I knocked on the door, but he hasn't answered. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that the fish will be there for several more years and give me another shot at him. I really like how, uh, and I, I feel like this is probably not unique to us, but I, I like how um, like favorite fish don't necessarily correspond to biggest fish. Um, <laughs> I'm not even sure what my biggest trout is, but I can guarantee it's not my favorite fish because I can remember my favorite fish and I know they're not the biggest, but there's like so many things that go into what makes your favorite fish. Like um, I caught a brook trout this summer that I, I've been calling my favorite brook trout that I've ever caught because it had these, uh, the, the white slashes on the, on the bottom uh -huh. fins, you know, um, it, it had yellow slashes instead of white wow. and it really stuck out in the water. Like as I was reeling it in, I was like, I, I could see the yellow. Um, and so that was like super special to me, even though I've caught way bigger and you know, the rest of the body's probably been more colorful, but that, that one aspect was like, this is so unique. Um, yeah, even though it's probably cool. like eight inches long. Um, and for you, I'm sure like being with your dad on Father's Day and, yep. and having encountered that fish before and, you know, so many things go into what make uh, a, a fish a special experience. And it, and it often doesn't have that much to do with size. Yeah. You know, as a kid, I was convinced that my dad's fly rod was magic and whatever, wherever he pointed it, there was a fish. Mm -hmm. And so it took a long time before I felt like I was an equivalent fisherman to him. And, you know, it's with a tinge of sadness, I say that I have overtaken that role in, in our relationship. And I usually catch more fish than he does. What a um, shame. <laughs> on, on every trip we go. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it is, right? I mean, it's it's showing that changing of the guard. And, sure. and you know, I mean, nobody escapes, uh, uh, you know, father time, right? So um, it's certainly indicative of that. But um, it's been funny to hear when we take somebody with us, my dad always defaults to me now to teach that person how to fly fish. And I don't know when exactly that happened, but uh, it's somewhere along the line, he felt like I was the one that should be teaching people how to do this instead of him, even mm -hmm. though he's, he was the one that taught me. And so that, that was a kind of cool designation for me as well um, to, to have the person that I respect the most as a fisherman in my life um other you know different example than landon and somebody like that but uh you know to have that um to have him view me in that way was was something i really valued a lot so that was just one of the the byproducts of us fishing together all this time yeah i i um grew up fishing you know my dad would take me but he didn't really fish he would just he was an enabler you know he would he would drive <laughs> me to where i wanted to go and stuff but i never had that um that same feeling of like being you know taught a lot 
Um, and sometimes I wish I did, you know, as much as I really liked the situation I grew up in. Um, but I can imagine that's a, a really nice feeling to kind of be given, I don't want to say the permission, but almost just the acknowledgement that, that he's kind of passing, like you said, the changing of the guard, um, passing that over to you and kind of saying like, you're the, you're the boss here now. Um, yeah. and I'm sure he's just kind of enjoying his time out on the water at this point, more so than numbers or size or anything like that. Yeah. When, when we go to the Creek, I don't mention the name of, um, here in Arizona and fish, um, because it's so rugged there, we have changed our routine where he will fish two big, really big holes that he loves to stand and cast, you know, he'll spend half a morning at one and the rest of the afternoon at the other. And, uh, and then just kind of go back and forth and I will fish the rest of the Canyon and then circle back to him. And the first time we did that again, that was kind of an acknowledgement of, Hey, I'm not able to do this physically anymore, but this has become the new normal. And so I will go up through that Canyon and fish five or six hours on my own and then circle back to him. And I will catch on an average day, 25 to maybe 40 fish. And if I'm lucky, one big brown trout in that mix. And then the rest of them are smaller brown trout and, and stalker rainbows. Um, the, the, the rainbow, the brown trout are all native. They don't stock brown trout in, in Arizona, um, in the streams. So, and then I'll circle back to him and he sometimes catches more fish than me in the big holes because he spends all day there doing it. And he's kind of got that dialed in, but overall he'll catch like a dozen fish to my, you know, three dozen fish. Um, uh, but I'm covering way more ground than he is. I'm fishing very familiar water. I skip over the stuff that I know is a little flat, you know, some of the riffles are too thin to really worry about. So I just jump to the next spot kind of, and, and so I'm maximizing my opportunities where he's trying to solve the puzzle of that one spot for two or three hours at a time. And then it's a short jaunt to the next big hole that he likes to fish. And then he repeats that process. And then we'll end up back at that first big hole at the end of the day and fish there till close to dark. And then we head out. So it's been a, it's been a, it's the perfect setup for that stuff. Uh, and I'm glad we found a way to modify it where he is still comfortable doing it. Um, you know, that first fishing trip without him is going to be very, very difficult for sure. But um, I, I certainly assume that I will do this my whole life, even to that spot. Um, but I dread the thought of him not being able to, to do that stuff with me anymore, for sure. Now, do you think that you'll, you know, when that day comes, um, maybe kind of fish that hole the way he does in, in almost like in remembrance of him like it would would that would that be some sort of spiritual connection for you to kind of honor that memory uh i'm i have no doubt i'm i i'm trying not to think about it because you know as the years tick by that that becomes more and more of a reality and uh and i i wrote a blog post a little while ago um called qtl quality time left it's something that he has hammered into me for a long, long time, not just recently as he's gotten older and, you know, had some physical limitations on what he can do. We've always been cognizant about the fact that, Hey, it's someday this all comes to an end. I, I got in a very, very bad car accident in 2015. I got hit head on by a drunk driver at five o'clock in the morning, headed to go fishing. Uh, luckily for us, he was already at our destination and not in the car with me, but that easily could have been the end of that, right? I could have ended up in a wheelchair. I could have ended up dead. 
that could have changed things in an instant. That would have been tragic. It would be sad when he's no longer around, but at least that's the natural order of life. A father should not have to bury their son, but you know, the, a child burying their, their father is sad, but it's not a tragedy, so to speak. So uh, that's always been top of mind. And again, as we do one more trip and have one more, you know, one more set of memories in the books, I, I always assume that this may be the last one because you never know. And so I try to, without, without the dark side of that hanging over us, I try to maximize that event, whether it's a one, you know, a turnaround trip here in Arizona or a two week extended trip like we just did. I'm always kind of doing that under the assumption that this might be the last one. And at some point I will be doing this in his honor and in, in his memory instead of doing it with him. As much as it's kind of a sad thought to, you know, constantly have that in the back of your mind that, you know, this could be the last trip. It's probably not, but it could be. Um, I feel like there's got to be a, a benefit to that, though, where you probably don't let any trips with him go to waste either. I mean, it's so easy, you know, especially <laughs> right. if I'm fishing by myself or something. But, you know, if you take somebody out who really wants to go or, you know, there's just something different about that trip um, for you, obviously, with your dad and the fact that, it, you know, you know, the time's not going to last forever. Um, I feel like it's a lot easier to avoid those trips that just kind of get thrown on the back burner that you don't remember. You know, I, I don't remember yeah. half the trips I took this summer because they're 10 minutes from my house. And, you know, I probably didn't catch anything of much substance. But like if you go out, even if you only catch a couple fish, um, I feel like it's a little bit easier to make every trip feel like a, a bigger deal if you've got something like that, kind of that weight on the trip. Well, personally, I, as you probably saw from my bio, I do some public speaking and mm. a, a lot of times my target, I do a lot of stuff at universities and colleges. And so, you know, I know at that age, I didn't have any concept of the fact that I wasn't bulletproof and that I wouldn't live forever. Right. But I try to convey some of that thought to people so that at least if they, even if they just think about it for that moment, they're a little more cognizant of that. But I think that more people should live their life that way because we take so much for granted. And, you know, I had, I had a rough trip, right? Poor me. I'm in Idaho fly fishing with my dad and I'm, my biggest complaint is I'm not catching very many fish, right? How sad, right? First world problems. But again, because I, in the back of my mind, this may be the, the last big trip that we take. Every dinner that we had, every conversation that we had, all of that meant more because of that, that thought is so prevalent. I'm not taking it for granted. I'm not assuming that, hey, next month we'll do the same thing again, right? And so I think more people should, to some degree, be cognizant that we're all on a timeline that we're unaware of. And it's not uh, the assumption that everybody has, which is we're going to die at 102 in a hospital bed surrounded by your family who all love you, right? Um, again, I could have died in that car accident that happened a while ago and all by myself in the middle of nowhere, right? That would have been the, that would have been my end. And so keeping our, our inevitable demise somewhat top of mind keeps me a little more grounded. Uh, I, it softens the expectations. It takes the edge off of disappointments and it makes me appreciate the little things that go along with a trip like that. Not just, oh, well, on my on my float trip, I only caught ten fish 
right? That I don't want that hanging. I don't want that to be what I remember. What I want to remember is all that time I got to spend with my dad for the two weeks that we were fishing together. I've even had times where I like, you know, not, not literally, but like kind of punish myself in my mind. If I, if I notice myself thinking things like, yeah, that wasn't very good. And I'm like, why wasn't it good? You know, I, you know, I, I could be at work. I could be doing something other than, you know, standing <laughs> right. in a river, casting a line. And right. uh, sometimes I get a little angry with myself when I notice myself thinking like, I didn't really like that fishing trip. Um, because it, like, why, why, why do I dislike it? Cause I didn't catch anything or, I mean, I guess the most frustrated I get is when I'm getting tangles and, and caught on trees sure. and stuff, but still at the end of the day, like pretty minor problems. Oh no, I had to, I had to pull my fly out of a tree and retie it or, or something like that. It's so, it's so easy to get in that negative mindset where, um, you're just looking for everything that went wrong instead of realizing that, you know, so what you, worst case scenario, you stood in the river for a little bit and didn't catch anything, but. Right. It, I mean, the, our, our hobby of choice is, can be very frustrating, right? I mean, you know, there's been times where, you know, we've all not caught fish or you get stuck and tie on a rig and within one cast, break everything off and have yeah, to sit down. Three and flies and... <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it can be aggravating. There's no doubt. But, um, as we kind of, you know, hopefully a lot of people have this, I, I actually, I'll, I'll pose it as a question instead of making a statement. Do you have an experience when you're fishing of complete immersion in what you're doing to the point where at a bunch of time passes and you sort of like snap out of it and wake up like, oh, geez, how long was I out? Right. Does that happen to you? It does. But I find um, the opposite of what I would expect where I you know, frequently will zone out and then I'll be like, oh my God, I'm sure and, and you know, two hours has passed and I missed it. And instead, for some reason with fishing, I find that the time moves a little slower, which is great. Hmm. Um, but I've had a lot of, of, a lot of experiences where I'm, you know, worried like, oh no, I should, I should get home. It's dinner time or whatever. And I realize that only a half hour has passed. And I almost <laughs> think it's because you are so focused that, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I can't say time slows down, but there's just, there's not much to, to think about. And so, I don't know, you, you don't have all those thoughts rushing through your head and, mm -hmm. and things. I don't know, it's so easy to have things be sped up when you're frantic and you're stressed and you feel like right. you're running out of time. But if you're out there and you've got what feels like all the time in the world, I feel like time slows down a little bit, which is interesting. I mean, and that's what I know. I'm in like the, the zone, if you yeah. will. That's interesting. I'm glad I asked that as a question then, because I, I have the opposite. Okay. Right? And, and I've explained this to a bunch of people and I, and I, I definitely get mixed answers. Yours was the first I've had accelerating time. Um, but like that there's on this, on the San Juan river, there's a famous place called the Texas hole and that's where the boat ramp is. So the, the guides typically start there. Where is drift. that? Cause that sounds familiar and I'm not sure if maybe that's where I was. So it is, it's within the first mile below the dam. That must have been what, where I was. Where, what is considered the, the true blue ribbon fishery part of that river. Um, there's, um, uh, again, it's, it's, the, it's the only boat ramp that's that far up uh, on the river. And so the guides come in and drop their boats there. It's a huge swirl. And there's a part of the river that branches off and goes right against the cliff that comes down through there and then meets up to make a back eddy in that hole and so it, it is picture perfect it's just a it's an amazing spot and if the flows are 800 feet or lower 
you can cross the river up above and then come down on the opposite side of the bank or the river and stand in the water and fish the backside of that swirl. Okay. That's the easiest place for me to slip into that zone. And I've had some amazing experiences there because the sun comes up from behind you and it will illuminate all of the fish in the water for the first hour. So I'm standing in a spot where there's a hundred fish that I can see within casting distance. And I get so immersed in that, in that action of fishing there that I've actually had times where I'm the, the back eddy swirls around. And so I'm actually facing downriver, and, but I'm throwing and the line's coming back towards me. And I have watched my indicator and estimated where my line was. And I will see a fish who's sitting on the bottom do this. It will turn and pick something off the bottom and I'll set the hook before my indicator moves. And I actually was so zoned in on that that I saw the fish that took my fly and I actually set the hook before the indicator moved. And I am so entrenched in that moment that at one o'clock, I will have a headache, a raging headache, and really, and finally have to go, oh, okay, I need to, need to take a break and drink some water and eat something. <laughs> because for the last five hours, I've been standing here in these same footprints, completely immersed in what I'm doing. Not a thought gone through my head, nothing but the sound of the river and a little bit of pressure against my, my, uh, my waders as I'm standing in a spot where the water's flowing and just zoned in on watching those fish do their thing and catching fish after fish after fish. That's the, the fishing is, it's a close second, but it is secondary to that feeling. I don't meditate. I don't do yoga, but that is the mindset that I'm looking to get out of that experience. And that's truly what fishing has become for me. Catching fish is a close second, but it is secondary to that. You know, it's funny you say that because um, I was just talking to someone the other day. Um, we, we've got these fitness watches and they, they, they tell you when you're stressed. You know, I, yep. I, it you know somehow measures your breathing or heart rate or something like that. And I, we were talking about how we also noticed that it'll give us that your stressed warning if we're super focused. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be stressed, but if I'm super focused on a task, it'll say like, okay, just you need to, you know, relax, calm down. And uh, I've had it do that when I'm fishing, even though I would definitely say that fishing is a stress relieving activity. If I'm, if I'm feeling too stressed or, um, you know, my mind's not clear, I can go fishing and I'll come back feeling like, ah, you know, I, I got that release, that relaxation I needed. But even during that, I'll still get these, uh, my watch will still tell me I'm stressed, but I don't think it's stress. It's that focus. Like you said, where, <laughs> right. where you almost, you know, you get a headache from it because you're so in tune, but then afterward, it's almost like you don't get that stress relief until you're done. You, you know, you get back home and then you feel like you've had a weight lifted off you because you got that couple mm -hmm. hours of relaxation. But when you're in it, it's not necessarily relaxing. You're not sitting there staring at the sky, just, you know, breathing nice breaths and, and feeling great. It's, it's often really, really focused and not stressed, but there is a different feeling to it when you're actually in the moment. It is. And, and I, 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 my, my boss is not a fisherman. He, he, his, one of his hobbies is to ride motorcycles. So he understands that kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. And when the, when I told him that some of my best ideas for marketing and things like that have come on my way home from a fishing trip, he totally got that when he's out on, on a long ride, 
you know, his brain's doing the same thing. You're swimming around in your subconscious instead of being so present minded. And some of my best ideas have come at the tail end of a fishing trip where I'm so much more in touch with that part of my brain and the, the, the handcuffs come off of, of your conscious, or the, I should say it the other way, the handcuffs get put on your conscious mind and your subconscious mind is allowed to roam free for a change. And some of my best solutions to problems or some of my best creative ideas have come at the tail end of a fishing trip when I'm, uh, you know, making that seven hour drive home from, from Farmington, New Mexico. And I, I'm come back refreshed and ready with some new ideas or new ways to tackle things. I read that article you sent over that I think it was one of your blog posts. I don't remember the name of it, but it was, it was about that pure focus. Um, oh yeah. Three days of focus. That was yeah. it. Yeah. And you mentioned in there how, um, like you're fishing for like 10 hours a day and during that time you're so focused, but you also noted that, you know, you, you never get better sleep than right after yeah. that. I feel the same way. Um, also for hunting, I, I told you that I've, I've been hunting for the past couple of weeks and, yeah. uh, it, it's so nice to go, especially on one of those extended trips. Like I think this one, you said that was three days of focus. This last trip was, um, a couple of weeks yeah. and there's something that like changes when you're out for more than just a couple hours where, every day you wake up, your purpose is nothing more than just to go out and fish and come back or go out and hunt and come back. And I feel like after a couple of days of that, something starts to change where you you have no responsibilities. Um, your focus is solely on this thing and it's something you really want to do. Uh, and then you come back and all you, 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 know, you don't have to do anything before bed. You just have to go to sleep and wake up and do it again. Yep. And there's just like a change that happens where, I don't know, it's you sleep so well and you feel so refreshed when you wake up. Um, yeah, and more I sleep too. Uh, yeah, and I, I live in a metro area, right? I mean, I'm not smack dab in the middle of Phoenix, but I'm in part of the metro Phoenix area. Close enough, yeah. So, so the air is not super clean. There's lots of traffic. There's lots of noise. Um, you know, there's just environmental stress, I guess, is one way to put it with where I live. And so one day away doesn't erase that. But like you said, a, a couple of days, it, it, it gets, it lessens and lessens each day. And then on an extended trip, it is definitely, uh, at some point I'm, I have left that lifestyle behind and am now living in the moment of, uh, you know, getting up, you know, going to a new part of the river or, or you know, I, I do some hunting myself, not, not a ton, but, um, you know, just the, the tasks that you have, your, your list is one thing. Instead right. of my, my typical to-do list on a day where I'm going to work, where I've got, you know, a hundred emails come in during the day and 12 phone calls and, you know, all kinds of other distractions and things that need to be done. My task is one thing, get up, go fish, get up, go hunt, whatever it may be. And that is a privilege for sure. Um, I, 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 I'm curious if I lived in a place where I had more access if I would maybe be guilty of taking that for granted a little bit, if I got to do it twice a week instead of, you know, once a month or maybe in a good month, twice a month kind of a thing. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, in, in being here in the desert, I, my options are limited. And so I have to plan a trip and then go do a trip. I don't get the opportunity to go, Oh, I, my afternoon's free. I'm going to grab my rod and go fishing. Right. I, there's, there's, urban lakes that I could go to and bass fish if I wanted to, you know, be a hack and bass fish. Just, just kidding. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a snobby purist fly fisherman for sure. Um, 
but it's not the same experience, right? I mean, I even fishing an urban lake for trout doesn't have the appeal to me of going to the mountains, getting away from everybody and, and fishing in a, in a stream or a river. I think that uh, kind of points to what someone's motivation is. Cause I agree. We've got some lakes around here and I do, I do like warm water fishing, but that's cause I grew up with warm water fishing. Mm-hmm. Although I grew up with uh, a, like a wild river that had warm water species. And I don't have that same appeal to go to my local city pond, even though I can catch yeah. the same species. It's not, it's not right. the species <laughs> I like. It's the, you know, the environment they're in. Yep. Um, and I, yeah, I don't, I don't get that same feeling. Just it's not the act of casting a line and reeling in a fish. Um, I'll still do that. You know, I've got a couple hours after work, I'll go hit a pond in town, but um, I would rather not fish as often. But when I do get to do a, you know, four or five day trip into somewhere in the middle of nowhere, than to fish the same number of days, but spread out and be going to, you know, places within 10 minutes of me. Um, There's just something different about that. Uh, And I'm I'm not a a trout purist, but I am, I'm more of a location purist. I don't care what's there Mm -hmm. when I get there. I just want it to be the type of place I want to fish. And I want it to be not crowded. You know, I I feel like everyone's got their, (laughs) everyone's got their things that they, they look for. Um, And that's definitely for me, if if I could choose one thing, it would be a remote location that no one's in. I don't care how many fish are there, what species it is. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Um, Sure. Again, you know, this is something I talk about in my public speaking sometimes. Um, I would never consider being a fly fishing guide. And I'll tell you why after I ask you if you would consider doing that as a profession. Uh, I have done that. (laughs) Oh, you Um, have? Okay, sorry. Yeah. Uh, No, it's a, my situation was a little bit different um, because the company I worked for was more focused on taking like larger groups. Like uh, if a family wanted to come and learn to fish, it, it wasn't, you don't pay 500 bucks and go catch trophy fish. It was the whole family's going to come along and we're going to make it a, a learning experience. Um, so it wasn't your typical guiding. Gotcha. Um, it was a different kind of guiding. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed it. Those were some of the best times of my life, but I would get burned out by the end of the summer. Um, I don't know how my experience would have differed had it been kind of the typical guiding you're taking one or two anglers they've got very specific goals they've fished before um, and they're paying you hundreds and hundreds of dollars to catch them that trophy fish you know right um i think i would like that way less than what i did which was you know i love dealing with people who just want to learn how to do it and are excited to be out there um and are enjoying an experience with their family but i even with that i would get a little bit burned out by the end of the summer it was just a summer thing yeah. Um, so no, I would not, I would not consider doing it as a full-time year round thing. I, I think I would hate fishing if I did it. <laughs> yes. So that's my conclusion too, right? As, as a professional racquetball player, that's all I did. I was on a court or I was in the weight room getting ready to be on the court, or I was at an event competing. And my job also was teaching other people how to play. So I, I never really got a break from that. It was 10 years of just nothing but racquetball Mm -hmm. and I got burned out on it. And I, when I retired, I should have retired a year earlier and I just didn't know what else. I spent my whole life getting ready to be a pro racquetball player. I didn't know what else I was going to be if I wasn't doing that. So that kept me in it a year longer than it should have. Um, And it took me a while to kind of get my feet under me again and figure out, you know, okay, there's things outside of that life will move on. But I have vowed to never allow fishing to become that same thing. Because when I tell people how much I love to go fishing and show them pictures and stuff, they're like, oh, you should be a guide. You'd get to do that all the time. And my answer is absolutely not. The guides that I've worked with 
on the few times I've gotten to do that, they're on the river 200 days a year. And some of their clients are good and they have a go out and it's kind of easy work. And other times their clients are brand new and they're getting stuck all the time. And it's, it's, it's a, it's gotta be a drag, right? It's gotta be And they be don't get to fish work. much. Exactly. So that was kind of my point with the racquetball comparison is, you know, on my days off, I didn't run to go play racquetball. Yeah. If I'm a fishing guide, I don't see me running to go fish in my free time because that seems like work. And I don't want to ruin the thing that I'm most passionate about turning it into a job like I did my racquetball career. And I'm, I'm, that's also very top of mind for me in my public speaking stuff. I really enjoy my day job and it gives me a lot of freedom. And so I don't have any intention of replacing my day job with public speaking. I want that to be a sideline thing that I do because I love it. And, oh, I happen to get paid for it too. But I, again, I want to keep the day job as my income source. And then all the other things I do are hobbies and passions. And if they happen to also pay, pay the bills a little bit too, that's great. But that's a bonus. That's not a requirement. For sure. And I think my situation worked out because like I said, it, it was one of my, I mean, it was my favorite job I've ever had, but that's because it was three months a year. Um, Mm. it was, it was low stakes. Like I said, it was families, um, <laughs> True. Yeah. I was, you know, working with my friends. Like th- there were multiple guides on trips because we would take, you know, bigger groups more than just one or two adult anglers. And there might be kids there that uh, you take a spin rod along, and someone's fishing with the kids. Uh, it was it was more of a family immersion experience, and cool. because of that, I loved it. But yeah, uh, that sounds fun. But yeah, so that that was a great experience, and I would I would totally um, feel like people who don't want a guide they they could succeed in something like that because it that, that never really sense. felt yeah that never really felt like i was ruining fishing i, I would still fish on my days off because it, sure. i'd be fired up like someone just caught their first fish they're super excited and it's like yeah great now i can go out this evening and do that um yeah but that that's a different situation and i also feel like there might be i mean there's different types of of people there's people who fishing is their entire life that's all they want to do it's all they think about and as much as i would definitely consider fishing my number one passion and it has been since i was really little um i do like to do other things i like to hunt i like to ski i like to hike um there's there's lots of things apart from fishing that i also like doing and so i think the people who really really do well and like feed off that guiding energy are the people who fishing is their only thing you know they And they'll, they'll know it way better than I ever will because I've got, I've got the desire to do more things. It sounds like you're kind of the same way. Like fishing is your, your main thing, but you like racquetball, you like public speaking, mm-hmm. you've got other things in your life. Um, and I think, I think those type of people would do better not guiding because, because fishing isn't their everything. Yeah. I, I think that's a good, a good, uh, assessment of that for sure. So have you, have you ever had that, that notion of like, should I, should I try guiding? Nope. Nope. Never. <laughs> no, I learned my lesson from the racquetball <laughs> stuff for sure. I, I definitely don't want to, cause I ruined that. Right. I mean, I, I played it competitively professionally till I was 30 and was burnt to a crisp and retired and hung up the rackets and didn't do anything racquetball related for several years. And then, uh, somebody that I knew who was going to ASU at the time asked me, Hey, we've got a club together, but we don't have a coach. We got a guy that's the club president, but he doesn't know anything about racquetball. Would you come down and kind of work with the team a little bit? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like fun. You know, I'll, I'll go hang out with the college kids. And I was 36 at the time, I think. So, 
you know, I, my friend who invited me was a very, very good player. So I thought I, I could help him a little bit at the higher levels and then help the beginners and kind of help them out. And, you know, he said, well, you know, we're going to practice on Saturday. If you could come down from like 10 to 12, that'd be great. Well, what seemed like a one-time invite has turned into two days a week, about 10 hours a week, six months out of the year. And this is my 14th year doing it. So <laughs> I got just completely pulled into that and absolutely love it. I mean, I've had so many amazing experiences and by far the list of memorable and impactful racquetball experiences is way longer as a coach than it was in my own career, even though my own career was much longer than that. Um, and so, you know, I, I have had some amazing relationships with the, the team members and kids. I've been to a few weddings. Um, you know, I, I, uh, actually two of the team members met on the team and got married to one another. So that was, that was a cool story that obviously has nothing to do with racquetball really, but I'm very close with them still. And um, I've had about probably 400 players go through the program in that time. And I learned pretty early on that I was not teaching racquetball. I was teaching life skills disguised as racquetball lessons. And so once I made that pivot I really felt like I was able to maximize that experience for not everybody, but for the person who was looking for that out of the experience and teach very transferable skills under the guise of competitive racquetball. And that's been the most personally rewarding thing I've ever done. I feel like a lot of people would fall into kind of that category in whatever they like doing fly fishing included. Like I feel like being a, a part-time guide where you occasionally take people out and you still get that, that rush of maybe teaching someone how to fly fish or, or watching them catch their first fish. Like those things are still really exciting when it's not all day, every day. And it sounds right. like, you know, if, if you were considering this as almost like a part-time thing, you know, it has, it has grown to a couple times a week and it's taking up more of your time, but it's not, it's not everything you do. And it's not where you're making all your money. Um, your, your life isn't depending on you, you know, doing that job. It's, it's Correct. on the side. You could drop it at any point if you wanted to. Yep. Um, and I think that kind of freedom and that, um, you know, not full time just to, you, it's not the fact that you're making money off something that ruins it. It's, it's doing it too much and making that yes. your, your sole existence. Um, <laughs> so, so I think something like a part-time guiding would, would maybe equate to what you're doing with racquetball where you can still enjoy it and, and live vicariously through the people you're teaching. And it might extend beyond simply what you're teaching, but, um, you're not overwhelmed by it. Yeah. or feeling trapped by it. Yeah, uh, because I do that with racquetball, I'm, I'm not taking any chances with my fishing. So <laughs> I, I, I agree with your theory completely. Um, and I applied that to, to racquetball. I still don't play competitively other than, you know, beating up on the kids on the team, which, you know, depending on the year, sometimes that's harder than it sounds. Um, the Our number one girl last year was from Costa Rica. Well, she was with us for four years. And she was, became a very accomplished player by the, by the time her four-year tenure was over with us. And it was a struggle beating her by the end, believe me. And uh, she'll dispute that. She will, you know, she, I, I never remember losing to her, but she's very cognizant of the times that she won. So, um, you know, that's always been a lot of fun for me. I, it was easy for me to separate that from regular competitive tournaments and things like that. I've, I've always enjoyed playing against the kids and got better and better about dialing my level of play 
down to a half notch above where they are so that I'm sort of pulling them up a little bit, but also not, you know, beating the crap out of them and disheartening them about yeah. the gap between their skill set and mine, right? I, I wanted every kid to be able to walk away thinking, oh man, I, I was close to beating coach tonight, you know, and in a game to 15, I'm down 12 to 10 and then run off five points at the end so that I don't lose and can protect my reputation <laughs> and my ego for that matter, but make them feel like, oh man, I almost had him tonight. I'm, I'm, I must be getting better. I got close and just keep doing that to them. Ideally all four years that they're there. <laughs> that probably lights a bigger fire than, than having them beat you, you know, just be so close, but not yes. quite making it. I feel like that's the kind of thing that keeps someone interested in, in well, whatever they're doing. I've always contended anytime you beat me, you've earned it. I will, my ego will not allow me to let you win. If you beat me, you've earned it. It doesn't matter if I had a terrible day at work or I'm, you know, what, whatever, no excuses. If you beat me, you've earned it re regardless of the, your level of play. If I screwed around and put you in position to win and, and you close the deal, you earned that, no, no doubt. And so the few times that somebody would sneak a game off of me, it was a, a, a major accomplishment for them, a kind of a milestone in, in terms of their progress. And so, you know, that, again, I, I would, my ego doesn't want to, you know, to let that happen. But as my heart as a coach is absolutely ecstatic that they were, that they were able to do that, because I know how much positive reinforcement that gives um, to that player. And sometimes to them, you know, as a person, right? I mean, for some of the kids, this was the first sport they ever played. And to be starting from a beginner and get into a competitive environment your first year and by your fourth year reach collegiate All-American status, to be able to put that on your resume for the rest of your life and things like that has very, very long-reaching impact for sure. Yeah. I feel like that's transferable to something like fishing too. If, if you were to take, not, not necessarily even in guiding, but um, if you were to take someone out, I feel like there's definitely an ego aspect where if someone who you know is not as experienced as you are catches more fish, there's there's like some there's a competitive ego thing that's that <laughs> starts to spill over where you're like, no, you're not gonna catch more fish than I am. <laughs> Even if Oh good, you know, it's not it's not just me. <laughs> no, no. And, and you know, it's such a weird thing too, because you know, it can happen to anybody. Like I, I heard a story, I, it was a long time ago, but I heard a story about some dad who was taking his daughter fishing and he you know, he was out there to fish, but he obviously had to like babysit her for the day. You know, mom was away. And so he gave her this little, you know, Snoopy rod or whatever. And she ended up catching like the state record catfish. And you know that that, that dad was like proud, but also probably a little bit like, no, you, sh you shouldn't be catching this. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. It's, you know, it, like I said, it's the same thing with my dad, right? It's like you, you live for that moment, but then it also kind of marks a transition, not maybe not for her since she was so young, but it marks that transition of, oh, Maybe I'm not the best one in the family at this anymore. Yeah. Well, Darren, um, I know this is a little bit unusual because you, I, for some reason, I tend to talk to people who have some sort of like fly fishing company or book or or something. But um, do you have any like social medias or emails or anything you want to share if if anyone wants to reach out to you or follow you? Sure. Um, yeah. Everywhere on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram is Darren Chatter. C H A T T E R. And my website is darrenchatter.com, um, which has a, a lot of my public speaking stuff. And then the blog that I write, um, a random post here and there is about 
about fly fishing. It's a, it's kind of a brain dump in some cases where I, I just pick a topic and write about it. Um, so it's a quite a, quite a wide variety of topics, but, um, uh, that's just darrenchatter.com forward slash blog to access that. So yeah, if somebody, you know, is, uh, has listened to this and wants to reach out for me to some reason, or is in the area, you know, in Arizona or whatever, or is headed to the San Juan and wants some, you know, some insider tricks and, and tips, that sort of thing. Uh, I'd love to hear from him. I'd be happy to help. Yeah. I'll have to hit you up if I ever end up down there. I've been to the San Juan Please once. Please do. Um, and I fished the Animus once too. So I'll have to let you, cause I know yeah. I saw that you have uh, fished the Animus before. So I'll let you know if I'm ever Couple of times. over in that area again. Yeah, please do. And, and same thing, you know, I, I, I will likely end up on the San Juan in January, which is, you know, cold, but still very fishable. Um, so, you know, if, if, uh, if we had the opportunity for our paths to cross, that would be awesome. For sure. And let me know if you're ever in the Denver area, we don't have a shortage of fishing spots here, but sometimes it's hard to sift through them all. <laughs> That's very true. And, and believe me, uh, that my, my wife who actually just got home is a nurse. And at some point in our future, we're looking to have her do a traveling nurse assignment. And Denver was my first choice of cities to go to for a summer instead of sweating it out in Phoenix again. And for that exact reason, it would, it would uh, satisfy my fly fishing uh, addiction a whole lot better than living in the desert. So uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. we'll definitely keep in touch. All right. Well, um, I'll let you get on with your evening, but uh, love chatting with you. I, I really like these chats that are, you know, not as much about the tips, but just about the, you know, the experience of fly fishing. I feel yeah. like that's something that we all have in common. So it's always a, a nice treat. Well, I've enjoyed it very much too, Katie. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. And that is all. As always, if you liked what you heard, I'd love for you to go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts and subscribe there. Uh, if you've got a couple extra minutes, a rating or review would also be much appreciated. It doesn't take too long, and it makes a big difference on my end. You can also find all my episodes on fishuntamed.com, in addition to fly fishing articles every two weeks. And you can find me on social media under my name, Katie Burgert, on Go Wild or at fishuntamed on Instagram. And I will see you all back here in two weeks. Bye, everyone. think with four of us spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.